You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now our scripture reading is again from the Gospel according to John, and we're reading in chapter 13, and begin to read this evening in verse 30, and read to the end of the chapter. You'll find the passage in the Pew Bible on page 1082, and uh, apologize for calling them pews. Uh, David, I'll get it right eventually, the Church Bible, not the Pew Bible, page 1082. section we're going to be studying this evening begins at verse 31, but the context for that is very much set in verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, this is the bread that Jesus gave to him, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn in the midst of praising you to listen to your voice in your word, we pray that our sense of worship and adoration rather than be lost, may be increased, and that as we have cause to praise you for all your goodness, we may, in your word, sense the Lord Jesus himself as though he were walking off the page and coming toward us, and that beyond human voice, we pray that we may hear the voice of our good shepherd. We thank you that he knows his sheep by name, and we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that through your word and by your spirit, you would address each of us this evening by name. Show us that you know who we are and what we are. Show us that you know where we are, and show us too what you are willing to make of us in your grace and mercy. And this we pray in your name. Amen. 
Now we're turning this evening to the section that we often describe as the farewell discourse of Jesus or the upper room discourse of our Lord Jesus. And although it's by no means ideal, actually it's by no means ideal to be studying this passage from week to week. It would be far better to study it from hour to hour. It's certainly not ideal to have these uh, three-week breaks But if there was an ideal place to have such a break, this is actually precisely where it is. The chapters that we're looking at, 13 through 17, are in many ways a gospel within a gospel. They are the gospel of Jesus within the gospel of John. Unlike the whole gospel, which has a prologue in chapter 1 and an epilogue, in chapter 21, this gospel within the gospel of John also has a prologue focused on Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of glory, washing the dirty feet of his disciples, including, as we've seen, Judas Iscariot. And it also has an epilogue, Jesus, the Lord of glory, in chapter 17, entering into that glory and giving us both the longest and the most intimate of all the prayers in the Bible, and certainly the most intimate prayer of our Lord Jesus Himself. And in the middle of that prologue and epilogue, there is this extended discourse. It falls into two sections, begins actually here in verse 31, and goes on to the end of chapter 14, and then resumes at the beginning of chapter 15 with the famous section on Jesus as the vine and his disciples as the branches, and then leads on into the epilogue in our Lord's high priestly prayer. So, we've been looking essentially at the prologue, and the prologue to this section of the gospel, like the prologue to the whole gospel, is really all about Jesus, who He is and what He has come to do. In some ways, it's a vivid, dramatic expression of John's words in the first chapter, the Word who had created all things became flesh, lowly, weak flesh, and dwelt among us. And it was in that humbling of Himself that He actually revealed His glory. And this is essentially the theme that John takes up now as he records the teaching of our Lord Jesus. He's given us several different cameo portraits of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of all, and yet He washes the disciples' feet in humility. Jesus is the Son of God, but He gives His disciples a blueprint for how they are to live as men. And Jesus is the King of glory, and He has just directed the one who is to betray Him. In sovereign power, He has directed Him to go and betray Him, and to do it now, quickly. And so, from the beginning to the end of this scene, the Lord Jesus is in absolute control of everything that He is doing. He has just spoken about the fact that 
his soul is troubled in spirit, verse 21. And yet, had he not told the disciples of the inner trouble of his spirit at the thought that one of his own would betray him and all that that would lead to, the impression of our Lord Jesus here is one of extraordinary poise and amazing dignity. And then just at this point in the narrative, it seems to me something very dramatic takes place. Until this point, Judas has been in the room, and John has just told us that Judas has been dismissed by the Lord Jesus, and he ends the prologue to this section with these four words, and it was night. Judas goes out. Just look out the window. Judas goes out, and it was night. And it's almost as though what John is communicating to us in this language is that as soon as the darkness left the room, the room seemed to flood with light. You only need to read these verses slowly to yourself to realize that there is an amazing change in atmosphere and an amazing change in the topic of Jesus' conversation. The conversation has been about his lowliness, about his humiliation, about his betrayal. But now Jesus brings us to the very heart of what he has come into the world to do. And he speaks to his disciples, not about the darkness, but about the light, not about the shame, but about the glory. It's very significant, isn't it, the way John puts it. It was when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. Several things about that statement that are utterly remarkable. The first is the dramatic transition in the atmosphere. The second is the almost impenetrable profundity of what Jesus is saying. This is the time when I am going to be glorified as the Son of Man. God is going to be glorified in me. And if God is glorified in me, then God is going to glorify me in Himself. And he's coming to express to his disciples a totally different perspective on his death and, of course, his resurrection, but particularly his death, a completely different perspective from the perspective they now have and the perspective that will dominate their thinking for the next few days. It was said among the Romans, that the very word, the cross, shouldn't be mentioned in polite society. But here Jesus is looking forward to the cross. The time for His departure has come. His death is now certain. Judas's departure has been the signal to Him that the die is cast. But at the moment, 
Yes, there will come a moment when Jesus' soul is covered in a dark cloud, and he is conscious of a sense of being abandoned by God. But for the moment, he has this dramatic perspective on the cross. The cross is where he will be glorified. The cross is where the Father will be glorified in him. And the cross is the place where the Father will in turn glorify Jesus. It's absolutely staggering interpretation of the cross. And it is, of course, the interpretation that's picked up by some of the Christian hymns. When I survey the wondrous cross, no Roman could ever have sung about the wondrous cross. Or in the cross of Christ, I glory. No ordinary person could conceivably glory in the cross. It was, after all, the instrument of execution of slaves in the ancient world. It was the lethal injection. It was the guillotine. It was the hangman's noose. It was the electric chair. And yet there is something in what is about to take place in the cross that makes Jesus speak about it as the supreme moment of His glory. And the reasons are, I think, fairly obvious, aren't they? In the cross, He will be glorified because, first of all, He will glorify the Father. There will be no clearer expression of the worthiness, the weightiness. The Old Testament word for glory means weight or heaviness or value or an expression of somebody's worth or worthiness. There will be, never could be, any greater demonstration of the worthiness of God, the praiseworthiness of His heavenly Father, than that He should be obedient to that Father as His Son, especially when that obedience would lead Him to the death of the cross. And so, in the death of Jesus, He is giving expression to the glory of His heavenly Father. And in the death of Jesus, His Father is going to give expression to His glory too, because it's through that death that the promises His Father has given to Him. For example, that the nations would be His for His inheritance, the promise of the second Psalm, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The prophecy of the suffering servant, who because of his shame, because of his humiliation, would be high and exalted. Kings would shut their mouths because of him. He would sprinkle the nations with pardon and forgiveness. And all, of course, because of the significance of his death upon the cross, dying for his people's sins, rising for his people's justification. It is because of this shame, this humiliation, this awful death upon the cross that the Father will provide for his Son the most extraordinary reward that He will look upon the likes of us down through the centuries 
throughout the earth, in every age, in every time, in apparently good days for the gospel and apparently bad days for the gospel. And his son will see of the travail of his soul upon the cross and shall be satisfied. And so, in this one movement of Jesus' death, there is both the son honoring the father, and there is hidden from human vision at the moment, but becoming clear from the day of Pentecost and far beyond to our own day, the way in which the cross will be the instrument by which the Father glorifies the Son. And all of this fills the soul of the Lord Jesus. It lifts His Spirit. He exalts with His disciples, and He reassures them that this actually is the moment of the glory of the Son of Man. It's a very interesting expression, isn't it? Son of man. I'm old enough, as some of you are, to have been taught in Sunday school, I hope it's not taught any longer, that when the New Testament says Jesus is the Son of God, it's speaking about His deity, and when it says Son of man, it's speaking about only His humanity. But the language Jesus uses here, and this is the only time it appears in the second half of John's Gospel, is language he draws from a great vision in Daniel chapter 7. Yes, it is a picture of Jesus in his humanity, but it's not a picture of Jesus in his shame and his humiliation. It's a picture of Jesus following his shame and humiliation, going on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and receiving a kingdom and then coming from the Ancient of Days to share the spoils of that kingdom with the saints of the Most High. And this is is at the forefront of Jesus' thinking, at, at the center of His emotion, now that Judas has gone, now that the event is historically certain. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's going to begin that ascent. He's going to turn the cross, as Calvin says, into a chariot and ride in triumph into the very presence of the Father. And the Father is going to say to him, now, my son, just ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance." really amazing to me, actually, that in this context, these disciples who sense something of the darkness are bewildered by this talk about betrayal, are going to be further bewildered by some of the things that Jesus says to them, and He teaches them the deepest and profoundest truths about Himself. Actually, one of the things that concerns them in these chapters is that they're going to know Him less, and He's going to be far away. And what He's beginning to do for them is to tell them things about themselves that they didn't have eyes to see, or hearts to receive, or minds to understand, or wills to submit to. 
So, this section begins with Jesus speaking about the way in which he is going to be glorified. And he's going to be glorified in the cross. I think it's so important for us to to try and stand just behind Jesus and, and see what Jesus is looking at here. He's looking at the cross and he's saying, actually, ultimately, what the cross is about is the Father's glory and my glory. Truly, it is about my salvation and your salvation. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But there's a sense, isn't there, in which we, we, need to, we need to get a little beyond that if we're to grasp the magnitude of what the Lord Jesus is doing here. The cross is about us. It is about me. Where on earth would we be without the cross? But ultimately, it's not about me. Ultimately, it's about Him and His triumph and His glory and His victory and His honor and His love for His Father. And most of all, it's about His Father's love and esteem for Him. Remember how Paul puts it? Christ becoming a servant, dying the death of the cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And our response to that, to what Jesus is teaching here, it is exactly the same, isn't it? Therefore, we say, I too will highly exalt him. For me, he is the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, my knee will bow. I will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the things that runs through John chapter 13 is these very fast-moving change of scene, almost change of emotion. Because having just spoken here in these two verses, 31 and 32, about being glorified, Jesus now turns in verses 33 to 38 to speak of himself being denied. He's going to leave them. And so he says in verse 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And perhaps the connection is here, Jesus is leaving them. And of course, in the midst of that tragedy, are they not likely to turn upon one another? to turn in upon themselves. And so he says, although I am leaving you for a season, I'm also leaving something with you, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Formally, of course, there was nothing new about the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What was new about this commandment was not so much what it was formally, but what it was 
when they saw it fulfilled in Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you, love one another. This actually wasn't so much about how we love our neighbors as ourselves. This was about how we would love one another as fellow believers, as Jesus has loved us. And so he's giving them this immense challenge about how they are to live together as a community. And perhaps it's the combination of these two things. On the one hand, Jesus saying, I'm going. And on the other hand, Jesus saying, new commandment, love one another. And just in parenthesis, notice the beautiful way in which God's law, a command, and our love are not antithetical to one another, but are married to one another. And here is Peter, he's being told to love his fellow disciples the way Jesus has loved him, and yet Jesus is going from him, and you can almost see the inside working of his mind, wherever you're going. I love so much, wherever you are going, I will follow. And Jesus says to him, rash Peter, loving Peter, devoted Peter, but rash and weak Peter who doesn't really know himself. Will you really love me like that, Peter? I tell you, he says, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Interesting, isn't it? You can't follow me now, says Jesus. Later on, you will follow me. And this, in a way, I think is intended to raise a question in the minds of the readers of John's gospel, because the first part of this chapter began with Jesus and Peter. The next part of the chapter was about Jesus and Judas, and Judas has been dismissed to betray him. But the last part of the chapter is about Jesus and Peter again, and Peter is going to deny him. I think you can hardly avoid asking the question, so what's really the difference between these two men? What's really the difference between Judas betraying him for money, and Simon Peter denying him in cowardice. I suppose if you'd bumped into Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot in the darkness of Jerusalem that night, it might actually have been very difficult to distinguish the two of them. Both of them had moments of profound despair. We're told by Matthew that that Judas Iscariot regretted what he had done. We're told that Peter went out and he wept bitterly when the Lord saw and heard him deny him. But there is a difference, isn't there? And the difference lies in this. On the one hand, that Peter knew that Jesus had prayed for him. And on the other hand, that the knowledge of that grace, the knowledge of that love, drew Peter back to the most intense, if painful, repentance and return to the Lord Jesus. 
and on the other hand all that Judas Iscariot seemed to experience was despair without turning to Jesus. Such a word to us, isn't it, when, when we've sinned, when we've failed the Savior, when we've denied the Savior, when we've betrayed the Savior, that the only safe place to go for the betrayer or the denier is actually the Savior whom we've betrayed and whom we've denied. And that's what Jesus is really saying to Simon Peter. He's saying, I know you, Peter. I know before the next day dawns, you will have denied me three times. Don't ever forget. It's as though he's saying, please, my dear child, don't ever forget. I know exactly who you are. I know exactly your frailties. How foolish of us, is it not, to spend our lives hiding from the Lord Jesus, disguising the sins in our lives, uh, making clothing of fig trees as though his all-seeing eye could not penetrate. He knew Peter through and through. And that was Peter's hope that the Savior who knew him, the Savior who had promised to pray for him, would be the Savior who would once again receive him. But even if that question isn't raised, there is something here that as we close, I think we are bound to notice. And that is, as we go through this section, we see, although the word is never actually mentioned, that at the heart of everything Jesus says is the cross on which he is going to die. Not apart from his resurrection, but nevertheless the cross on which he is going to die. First of all, because the cross is the place where God's glory will be manifested. It is, as one of the hymns says, the trysting place, the meeting place, where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet where our problem is resolved by God's wisdom in dealing with our sin and judging and condemning it in His Son. He provides for us the forgiveness of His love and pardon. At the heart of the way in which God is glorified in this world stands the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet also the cross lies behind what Jesus says to the disciples. As I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Expressions of love for one another. Counting others as more important than ourselves, as Tom prayed earlier today. That requires that the cross lies at the heart of our lives too. That there is in our hearts a willingness to love others the way Jesus has loved us. You look at the cross and you ask, does he love me more than he loves himself? And apparently the answer is yes. You look at the Christian and the answer to the same question should actually be the very same. 
It's the thing that startles the non-Christian. It's the thing that when consistently marking the Christian believer makes even a worldly person in awe of what he or she sees. Because this is not natural. This is supernatural. This is not me. This is Christ. Every Every day this week we'll be challenged in that way, won't we? Challenged with the cross to love others the way Jesus has loved us. And the cross appears in another place as well. The cross is the place where God's glory is displayed. The cross lies at the heart of Christian love being exercised. And the cross, of course, is at the very center of our Christian discipleship. What seems to me perhaps the most difficult thing for me, perhaps for you, to take in, that the Savior I follow took up a cross and bore it to the place of execution. And He has called all those who follow Him, likewise, to take up the cross, to bear it to the place of execution. So the whole of the Christian life seems to be shaped and molded to press us into a lifestyle in which we are an entire army of cross-bearers marching through the world with Jesus at the front of the army, willing to die for Him, willing to live for others. Just a few minutes, I think, it must have taken Jesus to say these words. Amazing that John, through the help of the Holy Spirit, was able to remember them and to record them about how just in a moment Jesus changed from speaking about being glorified to being denied. And yet the mystery of the whole thing was this, that at the heart of His glorification, And at the heart of his denial was the very same reality, that he'd come into the world to die for sinners, to bring glory to his Father, and ultimately to bring us to share in that glory. And when these truths are impressed upon our hearts, then just a a touch of that glory seems to fall down from heaven upon the Christian's life and that other worldliness that makes us so different in this world and so relevant to this world. The other worldliness of the crucified Christ so earthed in this world becomes part and parcel of the way we live for the glory of our Savior the glory of our Father, and ultimately, the glorification of the whole church. May God help us so to live. Our Heavenly Father, we are but infants as we face this ocean of the teaching of our Savior. We cannot comprehend its depth. We cannot reach the bottom of His grace. We are in awe of Him. 
And even as in a few moments of study we feel something of the emotions and vibrations of those who knew him best and loved him most, even as we would have longed to have been there in that room, we thank you that we are here, not in that room, but in this room, and that the Jesus who spoke of his glory has now been glorified, and we know that his words here are true, and we ask that by his Holy Spirit they may be gloriously true also in our lives. O oh Lord, touch our minds and wills, our emotions. May we be in awe of the Lord Jesus. May we be filled with a tenderness of love for him. And because of that, a tenderness of Jesus like love for one another. How privileged we are. We thank you as we come to the end of this Lord's Day that you have privileged us by bringing us into the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the morning and in the evening, feeding us upon him. And we pray as we go nourished by his word, by the blessings of the Lord's Supper, the wonderful ways in which you've taught us to love one another in the fellowship here. We pray that we may tell in our lives, in the world, for our dearest Savior, and this we ask in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.